I've seen a city of gold I've seen a future untold I've seen a people in need I've seen their hopes and their dreams But we won't falter in fear We won't cry, we won't shout We must rise for our peers And never waver in doubt Because we are la unidad latina The land is there For people that don't know you, just maybe like a, a brief background of um, who you are in relation to the fraternity, uh, what you've, I guess, what, what you do now, and then we'll kind of jump into your, your, uh, your childhood. All right. Well, as you say, I'm Henry Villarreal, one of the founding fathers of La Unidad, and it was a great honor to be a, a member of that founding group. But uh, in looking back, I had a career in higher education mostly and retired almost three years ago. Uh, but over the course of my career, I worked at uh, state schools, private schools, and ultimately at a community college where I uh, ended my career. And so each of those experiences really allowed me to be very much involved in helping ensure the success of students of color, and in particular, Latino students. So uh, a, a career of 30 plus years uh, in education. Gotcha. Your last job, you were a, a dean of the school, or what was your position there? Yes, I was the dean of enrollment services at College of San Mateo. San Mateo, awesome. Um, and uh, Henry, can you tell us a little bit about just your childhood growing up, how you ended up making it to uh, Cornell University, being a Latino back in the 80s, like, you know, that's like almost kind of unheard of, right? Like coming yes, from where so you come was. from to going to Cornell, like an Ivy League in New York. And it's not like NYU where it's like in the city, you guys were up in the cuts, like, you know, so I'd love to learn a little bit about your childhood and how you even got to that point. All right. Well, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, South Phoenix, and actually started out in a smaller town in uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and uh, a family of six children, two parents, grew up in a three-room house with an outhouse. We had uh, indoor plumbing, but cold water only. Um, so a very humble beginning. Uh, when I was six years old, just going into second grade, we moved to Phoenix, and there we moved into what we called a real house, because it had three bedrooms, uh, plumbing, indoor toilet, uh, just a dramatic shift from what we were accustomed to. But uh, along the way through elementary school and into high school, I did pretty well, uh, largely due to the influence of uh, my parents, uh, my extended family, both my parents uh, had elementary school education, but uh, they knew of the importance of education for their kids. And so I took them to heart in, in doing well 
and uh, yet having no one before me having gone to college i really didn't even consider going to college uh, when i was in in high school and it was by uh, a unusual a basic circumstance of having attended a presentation at, at south mountain high school uh, where a couple of chicano representatives were talking about going to asu i filled out a card and totally forgot about it. I said, okay, done, over. And it was about six weeks before the fall semester of 1970 that I got a phone call from one of the representatives at ASU saying, we'd like to come talk to you about coming to ASU. So I said, all right, sure. We set up an appointment. They came to the house. When they knocked on the door, I told my sister, tell them I'm not here. I don't want to talk to him. <laughs> she says no. She lets them in, and lo and behold, uh, six weeks later, I'm a student at ASU, and it was a challenge. Uh, I was in a program, an English class, uh, targeted to Chicano students, um, but beyond that, the university at the time was about twenty-five thousand students. Now it's near 100,000. But at the time, all classes, with the exception of that English class, were in these large auditoriums. It was very impersonal. Uh, I didn't fit in. Um, luckily, I had a job, a work-study job, at the College of Law, where my sister worked as a secretary. Uh, so I'd go to classes and go to work and um, go home. Uh, didn't do a whole lot of studying, at least not as much as I should. Uh, you know, a friend would come knock on the door, hey, let's go hang out. Okay, sure, throw the books down and go have a good time. Ultimately, uh, ASU didn't work out. After my freshman year, I was asked not to come back. Uh, sat out a semester, went to the community college, got straight A's except for a B and PE. Basketball and volleyball. So, I was so Henry, totally. Uh -huh. So real quick, so you you didn't do well at Arizona State, but then you got straight A's at community college. Why is that? The personalized attention, the smaller classrooms, um, teachers knowing me by name, calling calling me by name. Uh, it just made all the difference, and so uh, I felt good uh, uh, after flunking out of ASU, I, I was really demoralized. Uh, no, uh, very low self-concept. So going to the community college just changed everything around. But then a week after getting my report card, I got a draft notice from the army. Uh, and this was right at the end of the Vietnam War. And being naive as I was, I thought, oh, it must be a mistake. Um, I thought, oh, in another week, I'll get another letter that says, you don't have to go in. We made a mistake. But no, my induction date came in, came and I went in and uh, it was the first time being away from home. But then there were about 10 of us from South Phoenix that got drafted and we did uh, basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, where it's hot, but it's also very, very humid. Arizona's hot, but it's dry. <laughs> so it was a, a whole new experience. But uh, I think that's probably one of the best experiences I've had in terms of meeting people from around the country, uh, helping me to uh, become accustomed to living on my own, at least with the security of having a, uh, a place to live and food provided. 
And so uh, after the Army, I decided to continue school at New Mexico State. I wound up uh, being stationed in uh, White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. And then went to New Mexico State, heard about a exchange program with the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. And having never been, for the most part, outside of Arizona, other than Missouri for basic training, and now New Mexico, I said, I want to see a another part of the country where it gets cold and there's different seasons and so I wound up going to Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was a one-year program but then I enjoyed it so much I decided to stay yeah. and wound up, wound up finishing up undergraduate school there in Wisconsin. And, and, and quick question, what was the, the, the socioeconomic kind of like background of students uh, when you were at ASU, when you went to community college, and then now at, at, uh, at Wisconsin? Um, for the most part, those that I, that I was interacting with were lower income. They were similar backgrounds to my own. Um, many first, first generation in terms of uh, going to college. And so uh, a lot of similarities in that regard. And in Wisconsin, I actually transferred from Green Bay down to UW-Whitewater. And that's where, to my surprise, I encountered a uh, Chicano student organization. They, had, they were offering classes on Chicano literature, Chicano history. Um, and I became very active uh, with that organization. Um, and like the fraternity that that event that was established at Cornell, there was that support, there was that cultural background, um, that understand that commonality of, of having that common, uh, in this case, Chicano Mexican American background, and it really lent uh, support uh, to being uh, wanting to be academically successful, um, being nurtured in terms of of the uh, Mexican background, the cultural background, getting together and having dinners and uh, just supporting one another. So that was a, a big uh, contributor to uh, succeeding there at, uh, at the university. And Henry, you're, you're Mexican? Yes. Where, where are Mexican your parents American. from? Uh, from Texas. Uh, my grandparents were from Mexico. Um, and my parents were born in Texas. Eventually, they moved uh, to Arizona. Uh, and that's where uh, all my brothers and sisters and myself were, were born. Do you know what part of Mexico your family's from? Jalisco. Nice, okay. So I've never been, but uh, heard stories growing up about what, what the experiences were like uh, from my grandparents in particular. So, uh, and you, you grew up speaking Spanish, um, or was that not the case? I did as a child. Uh, I was, I wouldn't say I was completely fluent. It was a, a combination of Spanish and uh, English in, in speaking to people within, within the family, within the extended family. Um, they would be speaking to us, the kids, in Spanish. Me, I would reply in half broken Spanish and, and English. Um, and so that was uh, another factor uh, in terms of my education back then being that uh, 
we weren't allowed even at, uh, at the time I was being educated, we weren't allowed to speak Spanish, even as limited or broken as my Spanish was at the time, it, it was prohibited. And so the educational system in that sense was uh, keeping me from appreciating my cultural background, language being one of the factors that was being denied to me. And, and so almost instilling a uh, a demean, in a demeaning way, something that should be acknowledged and appreciated. And so uh, it, it uh, impacted me in a way that, that took away from my self-esteem rather than building uh, self-esteem for having another language and having a different culture. And in those days, that's the way it was. It, it wasn't a, a, an appreciation for a multicultural kind of education. It was more so still very mono uh, linguistically oriented, very monoculturally oriented. And so, uh, and, and, and that was actually an influence on my part to become an educator so that I could in turn appreciate and help uh, students appreciate uh, the diversity of their backgrounds, the cultural richness that they brought that they bring to the classroom. Um, and so uh, ultimately that's what I did. And was there a division between, you know, not being Mexican enough, being too Mexican during that time with other students? Uh, to a degree there was. Um, at uh, UW-Whitewater, uh, joining the organization, the, uh, it was a Mecha organization, student organization. Um, there were some students that were frowned upon because they didn't believe in at the, at the time what was the Chicano movement. That's in, again for me that is also what provided me an opportunity to continue with my education because of uh, the invitation from these two individuals to come to ASU. Uh, it was because of what they had been able to uh, uh, established in terms of outreach and getting more Latinos uh, to attend the university. Uh, but there were still some students who chose not to identify, but then at the same time, some, they were ostracized for not uh, embracing that cultural identity. And, and when you said you weren't allowed to speak Spanish, that was elementary, middle school, high school, college, or? Uh, primarily elementary school. Yes. Um, beyond that, I think uh, there was sufficient confidence, build, uh, a confidence that was building and uh, not, not necessarily listening to the teachers who said English only. Uh, and so it's a kind of a, a rebellion of sorts of, uh, of uh, again, still speaking in that, uh, that broken Spanglish, as we often called it uh, at the time. Got it. So you finished, you finished school, finally, after yes. you kind of a roundabout kind of way, different schools. Uh, you finished, and then, you know, did you know what you were going to do? What did you end up studying? Uh, and where did you go from there? All right. I wound up studying sec uh, secondary education to become a teacher. Um, 
again, because I wanted to have an impact on, on students at the high school level. And my first job right out of college was uh, as a, a resource teacher at a school in Racine, Wisconsin. And this was exactly what I wanted to do in, in terms of, of wanting to educate others. But in this case, it turned out that we, it was a program that was federally funded. It was a program to help teachers develop a multicultural curriculum. So I was working with three other teachers and we were conducting three-day workshops uh, for elementary and secondary teachers on developing this uh, more uh, diverse approach to teaching the stu their students. And in Racine, Wisconsin, there was a large Latino population that had settled out uh, from uh, the migrant stream. They would come up to Wisconsin, pick cherries and other crops. And a number of uh, Latino families chose to uh, drop out of the migrant stream and settle there in Racine, Wisconsin. So that was a surprise to me as well, to have uh, all these uh, Latinos in the area. But uh, through the workshops, we would look at the books and help teachers realize how monocultural they were and provided them with materials to help uh, diverse their, uh, diversify their curriculum. Uh, and at that point in time in Wisconsin, um, bilingual uh, teaching was allowed. And so we were helping uh, teachers and to incorporate some of these various materials into the curriculum. At the, the end of that first year, we hadn't heard whether or not the program would be refunded. And so I started looking around for other opportunities and uh, wound up getting a job at the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. And I had already started my master's degree in counseling there at Whitewater. So I had about 21 units already completed, but uh, then transferred up to Oshkosh because of the job uh, there and uh, ultimately finished my master's in counseling there at uh, Oshkosh. But at Oshkosh I was a minority affairs, minority student affairs advisor to uh, Latino students, largely Chicano students. Um, there was also a, a black uh, minority counselor and a uh, American Indian counselor. So uh, had the opportunity to work with students, uh, helping them succeed, dealing with a lot of the same issues I had dealt with in terms of uh, most of them being the first in their families to go, out, to, go to college. Um, and so after getting my master's degree, it had been about six years total living in Wisconsin, going to school and working. And so I started applying for jobs after I got the master, master's, applied for jobs in California and in, at Cornell. I had an interview at UC Irvine um, and, a, and at Cornell almost simultaneously. And I was tired of the cold weather at that point. First couple of years were great. It was so different, so new and unique. But after that third winter was coming on, I thought, oh goodness, here comes winter again. So after six years, I said enough, time to get back to a warmer climate. Uh, the job opportunity came from, came from Cornell, not from Irvine. 
So I had to give some serious thought to, do I want to continue to live in cold weather? <laughs> I thought about it, thought about it. And when I interviewed at Cornell, it was very interesting that there were a group of students that were actually part of the uh, search process. And they grilled me good. Uh, in fact, I can remember one of the students, Annie Mejias, who I still keep in contact with on Facebook. And she said, how do we know you're not just coming to Cornell to, to have a name on your resume? have this name on your resume. So, whoa. <laughs> so I said, hey, you know, look at, look at my job history, the two jobs I've had. I, I've really, I'm really dedicated to helping students succeed. Um, so uh, ultimately I said, okay, I'm gonna accept a job at Cornell and went up there and it was a great, great experience. Uh, being exposed to all these different students. Uh, I was w accustomed to working with Mexican-American students, Chicano students, but now here I was with Puerto Ricans from the island, Puerto Ricans from New York, uh, that politic there, the Dominicans, uh, just a whole variety of uh, different Latino uh, populations. So it was, it was a, um, wide uh, eye-opening experience for me to, to be uh, exposed to that diverse uh, student population. And then coming to recognize as well that many of these students were coming from the inner city of New York uh, and coming to this idyllic place in, in Ithaca, beautiful, beautiful area. Um, but these many of these students too were dealing with that uh, uh, disassociation of where they come from to this campus that is so beautiful, largely uh, uh, a white student population, uh, many of them being very, the white students being uh, very uh, well off, so very different than the, the Latino student experience that, uh, or backgrounds that these students were bringing. So as a counselor, I was dealing with working with students and contending with some of those issues. Um, and to your question earlier too, some of the students of color, Latino students, the black students, Native American students were questioning and in some cases ridiculing other students because they weren't enough, I didn't identify enough with their own backgrounds. Uh, cultural backgrounds. And so we had discussions about that uh, uh, during my time that I was there. And uh, the fraternity was something that Hernando Londoño had uh, uh, initiated. When I started there, uh, I was directing the summer enrichment program that uh, Hernando was a peer counselor for. for. And uh, that's as I understand it, when he started thinking about establishing the fraternity was during that summer. Um, and by the fall, he was able to uh, uh, get uh, the fraternity established as a student club, not yet the fraternity itself. And so that was in, until the following semester of 1982 that uh, the fraternity was established. But uh, during that first semester, it was very much a learning experience for me. Again, uh, learning to work with all these different uh, 
Latino student backgrounds, uh, learning to work within the office of COSEP, as it was called, that was the Office of Minority Education. Actually, COSEP was Committee on Special Educational Programs or Projects. Um, but uh, there was some friction between the Latino population and the African-American population. Um, um, the director and the other assistant director were African-American. Much of the programming and funding was uh, targeted to the African-American population because of the numbers. They had much larger numbers. Um, and that's one of the things that uh, I had to learn to contend with but then it was also something that the students were pushing. They wanted more money for programming. And so uh, ultimately we got more money for programming uh, at the students' insistence. Uh, they were a, a very political, politically astute group in a sense of, of demands. Uh, maybe not the most uh, effective in terms of being demanding, but at the same time, it ultimately uh, proved effective. Um, so, uh, a challenging, but a, a very good learning experience for me, uh, there at Cornell. Yeah. And so, uh, you were there and you, how did you meet Hernando? Like, was it through that program that you mentioned? Yes. Uh, through the, uh, interview process, uh, hiring students to be peer counselors with that summer program. That's how I got to. Uh, no Hernando. And then as well, some of the other founding fathers uh, met them through the Umbrella Latino organization, La Asociación Latina, uh, LAL, as it was called. That was the umbrella group for all the Latino student organizations on the campus. And uh, the um, different groups, again, had different identities uh, again in terms of their cultural backgrounds but uh, you know there was ship there was the cuban student organization ultimately there was a mexican-american student association that uh, got established uh, one of the uh, members was from uh, who actually helped who actually established the, the student organization was from houston texas jose contreras um, <laughs> A quick story about Jose. He wound up at Cornell. He took the bus from Houston, Texas to Cornell, first generation uh, college student. Winds up at Cornell. Uh, I wound, wind up picking him up at the bus station. I said, well, where's your luggage? It got lost on the, on the, on the trip over. He said, but I have a toothbrush. <laughs> I said, okay, we'll get you settled in. We'll get you situated. And so he, he was a homeboy, uh, total uh, dress, the bandana, the sunglasses, the khaki pants, the, the Pendleton shirt. And here he is showing up at Cornell, you know, in, in a, just totally out of his element. But he was strong enough to uh, overcome that, that difference. Um, but initially he, underwent a, a sort of transformation. He wanted to fit in, but then once he got settled, he went back to being who he was. And he said, well, where are the Chicanos? Why, where, why aren't they around here? So, well, there is, there's a few of us around. Uh, so, and at the time, Cornell did not differentiate 
ethnicity on, on the uh, applications. The student directory was all just a list of names. And so he says, well, what can I do to start a, a Mexican-American association, student association? Says, well, I think what we can do is we can go through the student directory and look for Latino names uh, with addresses in the Southwest. And that's what we did. Came up with about 30 names, sent out a, a flyer to the students, posted them around campus, and he had a meeting and students showed up and lo and behold, MASA, Mexican American Student Association was, was born. The group did not want Chicano in the name. They did not want Mechan. It was, they weren't, uh, they did not, most of them didn't identify as Chicano. And so didn't want that name as part of the group. But um, Jose was one, was in the second, was in the second line of, of the fraternity. Ultimately, he became an admano as well. Um, yeah. And so all these students, many of them were involved in the, in the different Latino student groups, including the founding fathers of the fraternity were involved in LAL, uh, some in uh, MASA, some in the Cuban uh, uh, student organization, uh, the Dominican student associations as well. So, um, so Hernando had the idea of, of forming this group. What, was, what were people's ideas I think, and I remember Hernando saying that his, his goal was to make it a fraternity. I'm very curious to know what were the thoughts of the other students uh, about making this a fraternity, being that there were already like all these student organizations already on campus. Mm -hmm. um, I think for most of the students who attended the initial meetings and then those that ultimately continued uh, and became founders of the fraternity, there was some hesitation of being uh, the partying kind of organization, kind of the, uh, the stereotypical, the stereotypical image of the uh, white fraternities and even uh, some of the, uh, the black fraternities. Uh, and I was very adamant uh, as the advisor to the group I don't want you all becoming like these other fraternities, you know, particularly the hazing, uh, the uh, acting crazy. Uh, um, and Ednanda was very adamant, no, 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 that's not what I want this group to be. I, and he was very clear. I want to focus on Latino culture. I want us to learn about our backgrounds because we are so diverse. We're not just one group. We're not one Latino group. There's you know, uh, this diversity of, of backgrounds. Uh, I want us to help each other exceed academically. And I want us to be able to contribute to the community. I said, okay, that's, I can get in line with you on, on that uh, vision. And so uh, he, he was very adamant. That's what we're, we wanna be about. And so uh, I think in helping to, to promote those ideals, that's what helped to uh, coalesce some of the uh, other members to joining the group and being a part of this uh, uh, fraternity. And he brought you in, obviously you're a faculty advisor, um, and I'm, I'm wondering if that was required to start a student organization. Yes, you had to have a, an advisor. Uh, to become a student organization. And so through 
having worked with him or he worked for me as a as a peer counselor that summer we got to know each other and um i su again su supported his idea for the fraternity but uh, again at first was hesitant until he explained this is what i want it to be that right on go for it let's let's uh have you uh get this uh organization established yeah and there was uh hermano jim zibel who was also a cornell administrator can you tell us like the relationship with him as well okay i knew jim from wisconsin he was actually on the search committee that uh, hired me for my job at uw oshkosh and when i got the job at cornell he was working at a school in illinois illinois yes in illinois um and we were in contact and I told him, well, I'm moving up to Wisconsin, or excuse me, up to uh, Ithaca, New York, not back, not back to the Southwest as I had planned. Uh, so shortly thereafter, I was at Cornell. He quit his job uh, in Illinois and moved up to Ithaca and then started working at Cornell with the financial aid office. And he too then became a, uh, an advisor of sorts uh, to the fraternity because uh, his background up to this point was also uh, working in higher ed. Gotcha. And so we have, we have two, you know, advi an advisor and administrator. Everyone else was students. A lot of them were engineers um, and a lot of them were sophomores and juniors mostly. <laughs> like maybe a senior there um when when this, this group was forming how much uh of the formation came from or influence came from alpha phi alpha or other fraternities that were already on campus in the formation of lul i think Edmundo may have consulted with them i didn't have any i don't recall having any having any direct contact uh, with the other fraternities in terms of how they got established, so on and so forth. And in part because I had this uh, stereotypical image of these fraternities and for the most part, I wanted nothing to do with them. So I think really Ednando did the, did the, the groundwork and the, the uh, consulting with these other organizations in order to help uh, uh, establish the foundation or at least learn the necessary steps to take to even to just becoming a student organization at Cornell. So again, I think Orlando really took the lead in, in establishing and uh, bringing this fraternity to, to existence. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious at the time, were you um, openly, openly gay? Did people know you know, joining the fraternity, uh, you know, being gay in administration, being a Latino. Um, I'm very curious how that identity played into uh, the formation of the group, your involvement in the group, uh, mm -hmm. and just overall the, the climate for you at, mm -hmm. at, at, at Cornell. Okay. Let me preface it by saying that uh, I was the only Latino administrator uh, at Cornell at the time. I think there may have been a faculty member uh, uh, at Cornell at the time, but it was it was a unique kind of experience being 
the only Latino <laughs> uh, in, a, in an administrative role. Um, so that in of itself was somewhat alienating. And thanks to the student groups, which basically was a part of my job was to work with these student groups, they let me, provided me so much support. Again, that commonality, the cultural, the cultural backgrounds. Um, even uh, though our backgrounds were Latino, they were still unique and distinct. You know, me being Mexican, many of the students being uh, Puerto Ricanos, Dominicans, again, the gamut, Cubans, but um, they, they were my rock, they were my support. Um, though I had some uh, professional colleagues as well that uh, would, we would meet uh, weekly to talk about uh, the kinds of issues we were, we were working with, contending with in our jobs and or the issues students were bringing to us. So we were able to discuss ways of, of assisting students with particular issues. But uh, that in itself was, was a uh, challenge, again, being the only Latino. Being gay was, I was in the closet. No, nobody, as far as, nobody knew. I didn't tell anyone. Now, they may have conje had conjectures, but uh, it was not a discussion. Um, it was never addressed. Totally in the closet. Um, and so, you know, the, the organization started, you know, you guys ended up, uh, what was, uh, yeah, so the organization started, it became a fraternity. Uh, you started having lines moving forward. What was that like now that you were like, okay, well, it's different when you formed the group and you started it, but when you start seeing lines come after you pledging, that's mm -hmm. when it starts to feel like, whoa, this is, it's growing, it's a thing. How mm -hmm. was that? It was pretty exciting. And uh, I can continue to emphasize no hazing, no, you know, let's keep to the goals, to the vision that Hernando had. Uh, and it was, it, it was so satisfying to see these, you know, the, the guys in line, walking in line. Even I had a little trouble with that, but, but they're getting together, they're going to the library, they're gonna go study. And then they, they would present their reports, you know, learning about the culture, their backgrounds. Uh, it, was, it was really phenomenal. It, you know, in fact, right now I'm getting chills just thinking about the dynamic that was taking place at the time, how exciting that was to, to see these young men uh, learning about their roots and things they didn't know about their culture. And uh, so I thought that was one of the beautiful things that Hernando came up with. I want the brothers to learn about their history, about their backgrounds. And uh, that, that, that was just really phenomenal. Um, uh, And the, of course, the students at Cornell had um, the academic ability to succeed, but they still were, were contending, many of them contending with this uh, uh, monocultural kind of existence. And so the support that the fraternity provided and the ability to get to know, to learn about the resources available, particularly the engineering school. Uh, such a rigorous curriculum, uh, but the, the, the uh, 
caballeros supporting each other, leaning on their hermanos to help them out, to help them succeed. Uh, again, phenomenal kind of uh, uh, opportunity. It was great to observe. Um, just incredible, an, an incredible part of, of my uh, experience uh, as a professional, as an educator, as a counselor. Um, and then having the trust of so many of them to come and see me personally with issues that they were contending with, uh, as, you know, aside from the fraternity, just personal kinds of things. Um, and that they trusted me, even though I was so actively involved with them in these student organizations, they still saw me as someone that they could come to and trust and know that uh, what they shared would be held in confidence. Uh, just a phenomenal experience for me. Uh, uh, as an educator. And so now let's say a couple years ago out and then now there's interest coming from other schools. What was that like? Much of that didn't really evolve while, while I was there. I was at Cornell for just under three years. So the fraternity was established in 82. I left about a year later. I left in July of uh, 83. And so uh, the fraternity for the most part was, was laying its foundation still there at Cornell. It had, it had become pretty solidified and there may have been some initial inquiries uh, from other schools. Um, and in part uh, because we, or, uh, we, were, we traveled to, not so much for the fraternity, more so with MASA, the Mexican American Student Association. We traveled to some of the Ivy, other Ivy League schools for uh, the Thanksgiving uh, holiday celebration. Since many of these students uh, who were part of MASA couldn't get back home for the holidays, uh, the Ivies had established a pachanga and they rotated the schools. And so I got to go to Yale and to maybe it was Harvard, uh, two different pachangas to, you know, where all the students got together or got uh, put up in their homes, apartments and such, and, and spent the weekend together uh, and celebrating Thanksgiving. Uh, but word was getting out about the fraternity. Um, but again, uh, in the, by the time I left, no other chapters, to my knowledge, uh, had yet been established. Yeah, and, and with this event, um, being that people were going to all these different Ivy Leagues, was that kind of a way where people were hearing about OUL? I think that was uh, because of uh, Jose, the, the student from Houston, who was a part of the fraternity uh, and pledging uh, at the time, he was disseminating information about the, about the frats. And of course about Masa too and how he uh, got that established. But uh, yeah, word was, was starting to spread. Got it, okay. And so, you know, fast forward, um, you end up, how did you end up coming back to California? Uh, when I left Cornell, I got a job at Stanford uh, with the MBA program as a recruiter focusing on recruiting students of color. Um, and it was a challenge. The, the job was a challenge in that 
my first three jobs had, had all been directly related to working with students of color in programs targeted to students of color, to minority students. Now at Stanford, I was in an office that was much more generic. Uh, even though my, a large part of my responsibility was to recruit students of color to the MBA program. Everyone, I was the only person of color in the office. So it, was, it wasn't a minority affairs office. It was an MBA admissions office. Um, and I had some challenging times trying to fit into that environment. Uh, but fortunately, there was a professor, a Chicano professor, Professor Poiras, who I was able to uh, gain support from. Because uh, my boss at the time, we weren't seeing eye to eye, and he, he helped me realize, look, she's been here for a few years. Hang in there. She'll, she'll probably be leaving at some you know some point soon sure enough so she left and uh one of the things that kind of uh got us off on the wrong track is when some alumni latino alumni of the of the mba program wanted to establish uh, an alumni group a latino alumni group and so we had a meeting that came up on a weekend and we had a meeting with my boss and and they were asking about the numbers of Latino students in the MBA program. And I said, well, they're still very low. And I said, in fact, when I first started here, I was flabbergasted at how low the numbers are. And the look on my boss's face when I said that, I said, oh, shit. <laughs> so from then on, uh, our relationship was not the most positive. But uh, at the same time, I was there to do a job. And so it was to recruit students and it was to, to address the reality of look at the look at the very small numbers of uh, not just latinos but uh, students of color in general so it was just under 10 percent when i started working there when i left it was up to 25 percent so i did my job uh, despite uh, the challenges it was you know it's part of that professional growth that one undergoes you have to deal with the good and the bad and but uh, i st stuck to my principles and in the end uh, I did my job. The, the numbers increased. Uh, nice. And where'd you go after Stanford? After Stanford, that's when I wound up uh, going back to Arizona to work at Arizona State, directing the uh, uh, minority student retention program in the College of Business and was able with uh, a staff member to establish a course that focused on helping students succeed in the College of Business for uh, students of color. Um, and that was very successful. And after a year, my boss at the time, who was an associate dean, asked me if I would, uh, in addition to my current job, and for no increase in salary, take over, oversee the MBA program. And I said, okay, sure, I'll do it. And again, similar kinds of responsibilities, more so now overseeing the program itself, but now also trying to increase the number of students of color in the program. So similar success uh, with increasing the numbers. Uh, it was challenging at first, but I had, he had my back. 
in terms of dealing with the administration and, and uh, helping others to recognize that you can't go by test scores alone. Let's look at where people are starting from, many of them being you know, first generation undergraduates, and now we're trying to get them into a graduate program. Uh, and so uh, again, equally successful in, in increasing the numbers, increasing the overall uh, efficiency and organization of the MBA programs. Um, so had uh, a good success uh, with that program as well. But again, it was interesting that I came back to the same institution where I had, as a freshman, uh, failed out of the program. Um, and uh, three years into my world at, at ASU, I started uh, my doctoral program. Um, because one of my staff started the program and said, oh, come on, you should join us in this doctoral program. Actually, two of the staff were in the same program. But I had to wait a year because it was a cohort-based program and it had already started. So I had to wait until the following year to start the program. Um, and so a year after I was in the program, I had about a year left of uh, coursework. Um, and I met my future husband uh, in San Francisco. It was so hot in the summer. I said, okay, I got to get up to the Bay Area to cool down, get away from this heat. Uh, met Mark. And a year later, uh, we committed to being with each other. But I said, I have another year of coursework to complete. At the end of this year, then I'll, I'll move up to the Bay Area with or without a job. Um, and so that year ended, I finished my coursework, didn't have a job, but um, the one thing I, I needed was health insurance. He could provide me health insurance. <laughs> so sure enough, packed up my bags and moved to the Bay Area. Took me about eight or nine months to finally find another job. And in the meantime, I was supposed to be working on my dissertation which I found was more difficult than I anticipated because I no longer had the support network of my classmates, my colleagues to, to support one another. Um, but then I got a job, a horrible, horrible job at, uh, uh, I don't know if you heard of the Healed Colleges. They're a, a proprietary school uh, and I was a dean of the evening program and I learned that this was really a school, it was, uh, I was with the technology part of the school. Um, and for the most part, they fabricated what they would be able to do for students once they graduated. It was expensive. These students were taking out loans to, to pay for school. Uh, ultimately, after nine months, I got, I got another job and was able to get out of there. That was really... Uh, as I say, a horrible experience. But um, I've been in the Bay Area ever since, and that's 23 years now. Um, my husband had been married for 23 years. Initially, we were domestic partners. Then in San Francisco, they started allowing gay marriage. We got married in that period of about four months before Prop um, 18, what was it? 
anyway, uh, the population, the, the California population passed a law that did not allow for same-sex marriages, but we were in that window and our, our marriage was, those marriages were, were considered uh, legal. And then finally in 2015, I believe it was, is when, uh, oh, it was Prop H, uh, got overturned and uh, marriage became legal in California. So we had another ceremony to celebrate our, our marriage. Uh, and so, uh, but as I said, we've been together for 23 years now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um and um, I'm guessing the Bay wasn't a place that you thought you were going to end up at. Correct. Um, I never wanted to move back to Arizona in the first place, but uh, uh, the opportunity was just, it was just a good one at, at the time in my career. Um, and I remember at the time when I saw the job description, it, it was like it was written for me. I knew I would get an interview. I'd get a free trip home to go visit the family. <laughs> And so I go to the interview, after the interview, I go, that went too well, they're gonna offer me the job. So I gotta come up with reasons not to accept it because I don't wanna move back to Arizona. <laughs> but uh, after going back and forth and back and forth, he kept coming, okay, we'll do that, we can do that, we can do that. I said, oh my goodness, they really want me. So I decided to make the trek back to Arizona and after five years, move back to the Bay Area um, you know, by, circumstance of having met the man that uh, I'm spending the rest of my life with, so. I've lost the signal. Sorry, there you go. There we go, um, okay. As, uh, as the fraternity was growing, were you just kind of watching, you know, from far away and just seeing how things were going? Were you checking in with uh, the chapter? Like what, what was your, what were you doing at that point? I had pretty much, I had lost contact with the Edmanos. Um, periodically, there, there might be a connection, but there was no ongoing connection with the fraternity. Um, I had heard that it was growing, it was expanding, which I found pretty amazing that there, that there were chapters all over the country. Um, I don't think Edmando, and certainly not I, I never expected that it would, that would grow, that it would expand the way it has. Um, but over the years, uh, it was a periodic uh, and often uh, contact that just happened one way or another. Um, but uh, then when the 35th anniversary was coming up, uh, the founders were contacted and asked, you know, can you attend? Let's all see if we can attend. And I got all excited again. Wow, I can't believe 35 years. Oh my goodness. Um, and I hadn't seen some of the Edmanos for 35 years. And so when I saw them, saw them in person, of course, um, most of them had gray hair, just like I do. And so it was, wow, I remember you when you're, you, know, you, you were students at Cornell. And uh, it was just, it was a great uh, 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 conference celebration, reuniting with the Edmanos. And for the first time, coming out to them in person about being gay, 
uh, totally supportive. Uh, just it was so affirming uh, to have that uh, reaction from them, and so uh, very very positive. So that was the first time was on the thirty, you know, fifth anniversary in New York City was when you told them that you were gay. Yes. Wow, I did not know that. Yep. Um, and I, uh, go ahead. It was just uh, it's a. And as I said, they were very reassuring. They said, well, where's your husband? He says, well, he's back in California. Well, why didn't he come with you? Um, well, I wasn't sure how people would react. <laughs> so, oh, come on, next time, you've you got to bring him along. And so I said, okay, thank you. That's, that's, that feels really good. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I, you know, the times have changed so much, of course, but uh, still it was, it, it was like a, a time capsule. I still recall, you know, being an admonitor with these guys, being their advisor, their counselor, uh, you know, back to 83, that was the last real face-to-face -face communication we had. So that was still my, uh, my uh, um, history with them. And so uh, I had no idea how they might react. Uh, so again, very reaffirming when, it, when I did come out to them. Yeah, and so you're in the Bay and then you hear, then you find out about Berkeley. Like, how was that? Like, I, I don't know if I contacted you, I can't remember, but then you found out Berkeley, we expanded all the way up to the Bay. What was your reaction? Right. How'd you hear about that? Uh, first, I was amazed. Um, I don't recall if it was you that someone contact, contacted me. It may have been you, I don't recall, but about trying to get together and have a lunch or a, uh, a dinner. And ultimately we uh, came to agreement on a date and time at a restaurant here in Alameda. And it was just such a rewarding experience. Again, kind of reliving this uh, uh, experience with a new set of admonos, getting to know them, learning of their experiences, sharing with them my background and my experiences. Um, again, just very rewarding to, to have that connection and to see these young men at Berkeley, uh, uh, students at Berkeley all succeeding and uh, um, just a, a fantastic experience to have that, that reconnection with the fraternity. That's awesome. Um, and it was, it was um, surprising for us to hear that there was, um, you know, a founding father in the Bay. Like I was un, like I was not thinking that was going to be ever a thing. Again, I didn't even think bros would be coming to the Bay, but obviously San Francisco being the tech hub that it is, obviously it makes sense that a lot of people travel to San Francisco um, and that there would be people living here that from the other parts of the country, not just California, or, or residents from California. Mm -hmm. um, hence why you came and just in general, right? Well, yours was more of a, a partner, but a lot of people have been moving here because of, of technology. And so right. mm -hmm. um, not, not a surprise now, uh, you know, that what we're doing. So very exciting. Um, you know, is there anything else, maybe questions that I didn't ask or things maybe that you'd want to let people know? I, I want to show this, I'm, I'm going to send this out to uh, all the alumni in California, all the undergrads. So anything else that you, you want to say or mention before we, uh, before we end it? 
Um, I would say I'm, I'm very proud to have been a, a, a contributing member to the, the founding of, of the uh, fraternity. Uh, but uh, very proud of the young men at the time who got together to become a, a, a part of this organization, not knowing how it would expand, the impact it would have on so many uh, young men's lives, um, and yet adhering to the to the founding purpose as Hernando had laid it out, uh, to, to learn about one's culture, to focus on academic success, and to reach out to the community. As just, it's uh, phenomenal that the organization has uh, maintained its. Uh, foundation and that continues to be a, a, a part of the fraternity and to know that it, it that it has made such a difference and helped uh, so many young men succeed academically and to gain pride in their cultural roots uh, that is so uh, so amazing so satisfying that the organization has provided that kind of uh, opportunity for people. And lastly, I would say, uh, now that I am retired, uh, any activities in the Bay, in the Bay, or Zoom meetings, whatever it might be, I will make myself, uh, I will commit to being more visible and be more active with any kinds of activities that uh, may be taking place. Yeah, I love it. I mean, now, well, there's no excuse, you're retired and no one's going anywhere. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to uh, a point that you made, um, Henry, about uh, you know the roots and and the honestly it was the indigenous back, like kind of foundation of the fraternity that I would say was very appealing for us at UC Berkeley in founding of the chapter of being able to. Um, you know, be able to understand our history um and and being able to like just research that uh and feel like we were uh you know part of a, 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 our ancestors and we were um you know we were essentially reliving that almost through our pledging process um and honoring them and that to mm -hmm. us was very powerful um and uh you know us being mexican some of our family members you know if you go for back enough we have indigenous roots uh, that to us was very powerful um, and we were able to resonate with that so much mm -hmm. as well. So Hernando did a, had a, a great, did a great job and had an amazing vision that connected a lot of people um, and has changed, like you said, many lives. And then here we are um, years later, you know, on a zoom call. Right. <laughs> So awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, Henry. Um, thank you for your time. And uh, uh, I, I wonder what's going to happen once we send this out. I don't know if bros are going to start contacting you. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right. I'm available. So I'm throwing it out there. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs>